Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Huntington Hartford rubbed shoulders with some of the elites during his Playboy years throughout the 50s and 60s. In photographs, he posed alongside Salvador Dali and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. In the wake of his father's death in 1922, he had become one of the heirs to the estate of his grandfather, George Huntington Hartford, who headed the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company. At just 12 years old, Hartford inherited $90 million, equivalent to around $1.25 billion today. In 1942, he purchased a 160-acre estate in the picturesque Hollywood Hills of Los Angeles, and named it The Pines. On the morning of July 20th, 1959, Henry Brueger and Salvador Senjas were beginning their caretaking shift at the lavish estate. As they worked outside under the sultry summer sun, a man scrambled up Sullivan Canyon, which fronted The Pines. He looked extremely disheveled as he muttered something about an accident at the cliff ledge. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 49 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. John Robert Briggs was a 39-year-old wealthy building contractor who resided in the Pacific Palisades area of Los Angeles. He and his wife, 34-year-old Norma, lived in a lavish home on Sunset Boulevard with their three sons, 5-year-old Jimmy, 8-year-old Gary Neal, and 9-year-old John Jr. The couple met years prior at a club for tall people. John stood at 6 foot 5 inches tall, while Norma stood 6 feet tall. Their romance was a whirlwind, and just a couple of months after meeting in 1950, the couple were married. Over in the Wilshire area of Los Angeles lived Norma's 65-year-old mother, Mary D. Nilsson, and she was a frequent visitor at the Briggs family home. While John was a successful building contractor, Norma had come into money. 
Her father passed away many years before her marriage to John, and both she and Mary each inherited a large fortune, some of which was distributed individually and some of which was distributed in a joint tenancy. John and Norma provided their sons with a comfortable life. They lived in a mansion just a stone's throw away from the city, and on the weekends, they went on drives and hikes in the Santa Monica Mountains. On Sunday, July 20th, 1959, Norma and John Briggs were celebrating their ninth wedding anniversary. The night before, Norma's mother, Mary, had stayed overnight at the couple's home, sleeping in the guest bedroom. In the morning, John Jr., Gary Neal, and Jimmy were sent to their swimming lesson. After they left, John offered to drive Mary back home. He suggested that they take the more scenic route, which meant they would avoid most of the congestion in the city. Instead, they would drive along the Canyon Road, which runs alongside the picturesque Sullivan Canyon, located around three and a half miles north of Sunset Boulevard. While the drive meant they would avoid the congestion, it was a much longer route and would still take longer than driving through the city. Mary wasn't enamored with the idea. She wanted to take the usual route home, but her desires were vetoed by both John and Norma, who wanted to come along for the ride. It was their wedding anniversary, after all, and Norma wanted to spend some time with her husband. John told Norma and Mary that on the drive, he wanted to check out some land near the Boy Scout camp near the canyon. The land was up for sale, and John wanted to show it to Mary in order to solicit her financial aid in a building program. The trio climbed into John's 1958 Mercury, which had once belonged to Mary, but she gifted it to the couple. As Mary got older, she found herself using the car less and less, and John was more than keen to take it off her hands. They then set off on their journey, with John first of all stopping at a service station. Here, he filled up the tank with gasoline, as well as a spare five-gallon can that he had recently purchased. The trio then continued on their journey, turning on to the lonely country road leading to the canyon. As they drove along the canyon wall, John pulled to the side of the road. He began muttering to himself in the driver's seat. The engine was overheating, he suggested, as he opened up the door and climbed out. Norma and Mary remained seated, watching as John rounded the car and popped open the hood, seeming to investigate the situation. Mary later recalled that soon after, John reached inside the car and turned the steering wheel right. He pushed the drive button in the automatic push-button transmission on the car's dash. The car quickly began to pick up momentum as Norma and Mary clung tightly to whatever was in reach. The car began to roll over the canyon John had parked alongside. It stopped for a moment on a small ledge some 50 to 60 feet from the road. As it hovered in the balance, the two women screamed for John. He stood behind the car, watching as it suddenly tumbled around 50 feet down the 200-foot embankment into the canyon. Norma managed to climb to the front seat as the car hurled toward the bottom of the embankment. She recalled, I managed to get my foot on the brake, stopping the car on a semi-ledge partway down. Norma and Mary were, miraculously, still alive. They had sustained numerous cuts and bruises in the crash, but thankfully, none of their injuries were serious. 
The women were dazed as Norma kept her foot on the brake to prevent the car from rolling deeper into the canyon. Mary said that as they sat in the damaged car, John appeared. In one hand, he was clutching a rock, in the other, a carjack. According to Mary, he shouted at his wife, Why did you put your foot on the brake? She said he then reached inside the car and began to bludgeon Norma with the two weapons. Norma managed to break free. She bolted from her husband and took shelter behind a nearby bush as he then turned his attention to Mary. Mary was severely injured, but she managed to hold her foot to the brake to prevent the car from rolling further down the canyon. She struggled with John as blows from the rock and the carjack rained down on her head over and over again. Midway through the attack, John fainted. It was this curious piece of luck that most likely saved the women's lives. Mary sat injured in the vehicle with her foot on the brake for some time before finally letting go. The car began to slide down the canyon, and as it began to pick up speed, Mary hurled herself out the door. As she clung to the uneven terrain of the canyon, John awoke. Mary asked John to help her up the canyon, but he ignored the request turned on his heel and slowly began to trek back up alone. Once out of the canyon, John Briggs approached the Huntington Hartford Foundation estate. He lay down on the side of the road where he was spotted by the two care workers. He was mumbling about some kind of accident, but he was making little sense. John then produced a handwritten note and handed it to one of the men, Harry Brueger. It was written on the back of a business card and read, Nana's out of the car. I love Norma. Help me find Norma. The caretakers assumed there must have been some kind of crash at the canyon. They went inside and contacted authorities. Police and fire units rushed to the scene and pulled up alongside the canyon. Detective Frank Gravante observed tire tracks going over the edge at an obscure angle. They peered down into the canyon and saw the wreckage of a car between 450 and 500 feet below the road. As the rescue party conversed amongst themselves, Paul Weiss, a ranger from a nearby Boy Scout camp, noticed the body of a woman lying on a semi-ledge around 60 feet below the road. It was Mary. She couldn't move due to the precipitous terrain. As she conversed with the rescuers, Norma heard the friendly voices and came out of her refuge behind the bush. Both women were bleeding profusely from the frenzied attack with the rock and the tire iron. Blood was streaming down Mary's face, staining her clothing a dark shade of red. The rescue team traversed down the canyon to reach Norma and Mary. Mary needed to be hauled up the terrain with a basket. One of the rescuers ripped a portion of his shirt off for a makeshift bandage to try and stem the bleeding from Mary's head. Immediately, Norma and Mary told the authorities of the attack inflicted on them by John. Back at the top of the canyon, handcuffs were slapped onto John's wrists. He continued to mumble as Norma and Mary were assisted up the roadside. As soon as Norma saw her husband, she burst into tears. She sobbed, I can't understand why he would do this. She continued, telling police officer Dean R. Thomas, I knew he'd kill me if he ever caught me. John was arrested and immediately transferred to the prison ward of General Hospital, 
where he was placed under psychiatric observation. During observation, John refused to speak. He simply mumbled. As he was being assessed, police asked for a complaint charging attempted murder. While this was being processed, he was booked on suspicion of assault with intent to commit murder. Meanwhile, Norma and Mary were taken to the UCLA Medical Center for their injuries. Norma was being treated for shock and a broken nose, but the injuries to Mary were much more severe as she had sustained a head injury. By the following morning, Mary and Norma were allowed to leave the hospital. Investigators began to try and establish a motive for the seemingly random attack. Norma Briggs told investigators that she and her husband had been getting along perfectly as they always had. During a conversation with Detective V.E. Peterson of West Los Angeles, Norma said that around a week earlier, John had insisted she make a will and name him the beneficiary. Around the same time, John appeared at a Los Angeles insurance company where he applied for $300,000 worth of insurance on himself, Norma, and their three children. While making the application, John lied, telling the insurance company he was worth $1 million. Two days after the attempted murder, John Briggs was brought to West Los Angeles Municipal Court to be charged with two counts of attempted murder. As he was being brought in, he bumped into Norma in the corridor. He glanced toward Norma and said, I'm sorry. Norma rushed over to him, threw her arms around him and kissed him before handing him a $5 bill. The bandages on her forehead and two black eyes were somber reminders of what had transpired just two days earlier. John began to sob as he was led into the courtroom. In the courtroom, Judge Leo Frund set bail at $100,000 and ordered a preliminary hearing for the following week. The day after the charges were handed down, Norma was allowed to visit her husband in jail for 90 minutes. After the meeting, Norma's attorney, M. Greg Medoff, said that she was convinced her husband was irrational at the time of the attempted murder. Norma also expressed her desire to have John undergo a psychiatric examination by a private psychiatrist. During the meeting, John had told his wife that he had no recollection of the attack, only compounding her belief that something nefarious was plaguing her husband's psyche. On July 28th, the preliminary hearing began. Norma Briggs testified and told the courtroom that she was going to stand by her husband, but only if a psychiatric examination showed that he was legally insane. She stated, I felt he didn't realize what he was doing. Norma's mother, Mary, wasn't so forgiving and bluntly commented, he tried to murder us. The testimony between the mother and the daughter varied substantially. Mary was adamant that after the car came to a halt down the canyon, John tried to force Norma's foot off the brake. Norma, however, said that she didn't recall this before adding that John had put his own foot on the pedal to halt the car. Norma admitted that John had bludgeoned her with a rock and tire iron as she screamed, Honey, it's me. I'm your wife. Why are you doing this? The preliminary hearing determined there was enough evidence for John to stand trial on the two attempted murder charges and he entered a plea of innocent by reason of insanity. He was ordered to be held on a $100,000 bond, and this was paid for by Norma. John was subsequently released from jail 
and moved back into the family home on Sunset Boulevard. His trial was scheduled for January 1960, but before then, the family vacationed together. On the morning of the first day of jury selection, Norma and John Briggs entered the courtroom at Santa Monica Superior Court arm in arm. Their three children followed close behind. I've forgiven him, Norma said to curious onlookers who sat in the public gallery. Jury selection was momentarily halted as Deputy District Attorney Joseph Chandler filed an amended charge adding two new charges of assault with intent to commit murder. By January 28th, the jury was seated and the trial was ready to begin. The prosecution put forward the theory that John had attempted to kill his wife and mother-in-law so that he could benefit financially from their wills and life insurance policies. The defense, however, hoped the jury would believe that the entire thing was nothing more than a tragic accident. On the first day of the trial, the jury were transported to the scene of the crime along Sullivan Canyon. Norma and John drove to the site in their own car. They all lined the rim of the narrow mountainous road as the exact spot where the attack unfolded was pointed out. A handful of witnesses described the scene they found on that balmy summer morning. Detective Sergeant Gravante detailed the tire tracks he observed that went over the edge, while the Boy Scout Ranger, Paul Weiss, described spotting a badly injured Mary lying on a semi-ledge in the canyon. Back in the courtroom, under cross-examination by the defense attorney, Detective Sergeant Gravante testified that investigators had attempted to find the rock or tire iron used in the attack, but to no avail. Testimony was then presented by Dr. Marvin A. Mack, who had treated both Norma and Mary at the hospital following the ordeal. Under cross-examination, he was asked whether these injuries could have come from the car crash, but he insisted they had been caused by a blood instrument. While Norma was standing by her husband, Mary Nilsson was much less forgiving. When she took to the witness stand, she maintained that John had attempted to kill her and her daughter by sending them to a fiery death in the canyon. She reminded the courtroom that before reaching the canyon that morning, John had filled up a five-gallon can with gasoline and then placed it in the car. Defense attorney Gladys Root tried to suggest that Mary had attempted to influence her daughter into testifying against John. Mary responded to the accusation by bellowing, he was trying to murder us. Defense attorney Root then asked, did you think you were going to be burned too? Mary replied, I was sure of it. Following her mother's testimony, Norma approached the witness stand and sat down. She was going to be the key witness testifying for the defense team. She clutched a tissue as she denied ever telling the responding officers that John had tried to kill her. She retracted earlier comments she had made about the events in the canyon, including her earlier testimony at the preliminary hearing. She now claimed that John neither reached into the car to turn the steering wheel right, nor did he push the drive button in the automatic push-button transmission. Deputy District Attorney Chandler asked, There was no struggle over the wheel? And Norma responded, He didn't touch the wheel. Norma then made the startling claim that she took the blame for the alleged accident. She said her foot slipped off the transmission housing and hit the accelerator. 
According to Norma, when she tried to pull herself back, she grabbed the steering wheel and drove the car right over the canyon. Next, Norma told the jury that she couldn't recall her husband beating her with a rock or tire iron, despite the fact that both she and Mary had told rescuers what he'd done. Deputy District Attorney Chandler then revealed that Norma had allegedly told police at the crime scene, he must have had it all planned out. He sure tried to kill us. Didn't you also tell the officer he was going to set us on fire? Norma responded, no, I did not. Norma's testimony was countered by a handful of police officers who took part in the rescue. They all testified that she had made several comments that John had been attempting to kill her and her mother. Her testimony was also countered by Bill Beebe, a Los Angeles photographer. He was on the scene at the canyon when Norma told him that her husband had been trying to kill them. Their testimony matched the initial comments made by Norma in the immediate aftermath of the attack. John Briggs was the next witness to testify. He stuck by Norma's claims of a terrible accident. He told the jury that he had gotten out of the car to check the overheating engine. While doing so, he said the car soared over the edge of the canyon as Norma's foot hit the accelerator. Defense attorney Root asked, and what did you do? John replied, I hooked my arm around the rear went. The car went over the edge. I was hanging on for dear life. He then related that the car halted momentarily around 50 feet down the canyon. He stated, I jumped down to the car and pushed inside. I was going to rescue my wife or die beside her. I blacked out, and when I woke up, I was on the floor of the car, and I was bloody all over. I was bloody, and Norma was gone. Testimony then shifted to a potential motivation behind the alleged attempted murder. It was known that John had made Norma change her will shortly before the attack, and that he had lied about his worth to an insurance company. John admitted to both, but contended there was nothing nefarious behind his actions. In fact, these life insurance policies were not yet in force, and John claimed that he was well aware of that fact. John's defense team contended that Norma was much more beneficial to John if she were alive than if she were deceased. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. After all of the testimony was presented, the prosecution and defense rested their cases. During closing arguments, the prosecution asked the jury to find John guilty on two counts of attempted murder. During the defense's closing arguments, defense attorney Root said that the entire case against her client was based on venom, hate, and suspicion created by the mother-in-law. She then added, Norma Briggs is worth far more to her husband alive than dead. The crux of the case truly hinged on whether the jury believed John and Norma's proclamations that the crash was an accident, or whether they believed Mary and the plethora of other witnesses who testified. The jury was sent off to deliberate. They returned with a verdict just three hours and 15 minutes later. John Robert Briggs was found guilty of two counts of attempted murder. As the verdict was read aloud, Norma burst into tears. She rushed to her husband and embraced him as he shook his head in disbelief. Judge Edward R. Brand scheduled a hearing for two days later to discuss the insanity plea. John was then led away from the courtroom in handcuffs as Norma slumped over in her chair and continued to sob. Both Norma and John Briggs were back in court just days later. Norma entered through the main door while John was escorted in from jail. The same jury that just convicted him of double attempted murder also returned to the courtroom to hear the insanity plea. In an unexpected twist, John withdrew the plea. Defense attorney Root applied to Superior Court Judge Edward R. Brand for a probation hearing. The judge set the hearing and the sentencing for March 18th. During the sentencing phase, defense attorney Root pleaded with the judge to spare him from prison for the sake of his wife. Judge Brand ultimately sentenced John Robert Briggs to 1 to 20 years in prison. As the sentence was handed down, Norma clasped her head in her hands and began to weep. Judge Brand commented, It is only by the grace of God that we are not here to sentence this man for the willful, premeditated murder of his wife and mother-in-law. He continued stating, I cannot criticize or justify the change of heart on the part of the wife. She was motivated by love for her husband and a desire to provide a home for their three young boys. Following his comments, defense attorney Root pleaded that John needed psychiatric help. She also requested that he be released on bail pending an appeal of the case. Judge Brand announced he would rule next week on both requests. John Briggs' defense team immediately launched their appeal, and on May 6th, John returned to court where he was granted bond of $105,000. The bond was posted by Norma, and John was released from custody, returning once more to the family home. Judge Brand had agreed with the bail application after psychiatric reports indicated it would be safe to do so. John was warned that the bond would be forfeit if he was found to be talking to Mary or in her presence. He was also told he could not leave the state without permission from the court. 
In December 1960, Norma Briggs sued her mother for a sole title to a Huntington Beach income property. According to the complaint, 11 years earlier, Norma placed the property, which was worth more than $100,000, in joint tenancy with Mary Nilsson after Mary objected to her marriage to John. Mary had never been happy with the marriage between John and her daughter, and she believed that John only married Norma for her money. All throughout the marriage, Mary had warned Norma that one day, John would kill her to obtain her fortune. Mary had no plans to give up her interest in the property or accounts for rents received, which resulted in Norma filing a lawsuit against her. As this lawsuit was meandering its way through the court system, so was John's appeal. In August 1962, the state Supreme Court reversed his conviction on the two attempted murders. A new trial was ordered after the Supreme Court concluded the statements Norma gave police accusing John of the attempted murders were wrongfully admitted at trial. They found that comments made at the scene of the crash regarding John's intent were hearsay and their admission constituted prejudicial error. In April 1964, the prosecution dismissed the case against John because Mary was too ill to appear at a new trial. Three months later, Mary passed away at her home in Los Angeles. At the time, she was estranged from her daughter, but since she left no will, her whole estate worth $2.5 million was expected to be left to Norma. The next year, John filed two lawsuits charging false imprisonment and malicious prosecution. He asked the court to fix damages in accordance with proof. One of these lawsuits was filed against 10 John Doe defendants. These defendants were presumably the police officers involved in his arrest and the district attorney's deputies who prosecuted him. The second lawsuit was against Norma, the dutiful wife who had stood by him throughout his legal woes. John wanted to be made administrator of the $2.5 million estate that Norma had acquired upon the passing of her mother. In the lawsuit, John charged that both Mary and Norma had conspired with authorities to bring about the prosecution. A couple of months after the lawsuits were filed, Norma filed a divorce suit against John. In the divorce complaint, she accused John of extreme cruelty and said that he inflicted grievous mental and physical suffering upon her all throughout their marriage. This was a stark contrast to her earlier tales of blissful marriage as she defended her husband against the attempted murder charges. In September 1965, John was awarded $388,000 from Mary's estate. Norma agreed to the settlement while John agreed to drop the lawsuit against Norma. The agreement meant that John would receive four parcels of real estate worth $127,000 and $261,000 in cash. Superior Judge Donald R. Wright was dubious about the matter. Still, nevertheless, he allowed the settlement, stating, I realize that it's her business if she wants to give it away, but I can't put my blessing on this. Later that same year, the divorce between Norma and John was finalized. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this podcast, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. 
This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.